At first, we start with the Pandora Papers, 12 million documents tracing the hidden offshore wealth of some of the world's most rich and powerful. i got Jim Stanford standing by, but first, have a listen to this report now from Global News. From pop star Shakira to Vladimir Putin and former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, the Pandora Papers shed light on how the rich and famous have used offshore accounts over the last quarter century, sometimes for privacy, though many are designed to avoid paying tax and hide trillions in assets for other shady purposes. The Pandora Papers probed nearly 12 million files, including emails and bank statements. 330 current and former politicians are mentioned. The expose published late Sunday is the work of 600 journalists from 117 countries. To be clear, it's not illegal to have an offshore bank account or to set up a company in another country as long as it's disclosed and the appropriate taxes are paid. The problem with tax havens, though, is that they're a go-to for money launderers, criminals and tax evaders. Our tax system makes it just a bit too easy to pay very little tax when you're holding assets abroad and investing abroad. More than 500 Canadian citizens or residents are mentioned in the Pandora Papers, including Olympic figure skater Elvis Stoiko, who moved $6.5 million in assets to an offshore trust in 2007. And Formula One champion Jacques Villeneuve, the probe shows he set up companies in zero-tax jurisdictions for his racing and endorsement income. In a statement to Global News, the CRA reiterates its commitment to protecting the integrity of the Canadian tax system by combating international tax evasion and aggressive tax avoidance. The Liberal platform pledged to increase CRA resources by up to a billion annually, but the opposition says there hasn't been a single conviction for tax evasion in the six years that Trudeau has been in office. We've had historically low enforcement over money laundering and white-collar crime in Canada. Since a similar investigation, the Panama Papers were released five years ago, some rules globally and in Canada were tightened. There are some people who feel that Canada did too little and uh, did it too late in response to the Panama Papers. But with the right lawyers and accountants, companies and individuals are still able to play hide-and-seek with their wealth. And Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Stanford, economist at the Center for Future Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Jim, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, Jim, the Pandora Papers. Is any of this stuff illegal? Like, is it against the law to squirrel away your money in the Panama and the Cayman Islands? Oh, some of it surely is uh, illegal. There are obviously... Uh, openings for people with clever accountants and clever lawyers to shelter their money. But there's no doubt that uh, some some characters in this business, this tax uh, avoidance business, push the envelope in terms of what's legal and what isn't. And uh, many of the brokers and uh, and financial advisors who help rich people do this are, are under investigation for going too far. On the other hand, perhaps the greatest scandal, Mike, is so much of it is legal. Uh, The fact that we allow people to just create these shell companies and create family trusts and create entities in offshore havens like Bermuda or takes Turks and Caicos Islands and that this is somehow considered a legitimate business activity. Frankly, I'm more upset about that than about the, the... the, those that are actually doing something illegal. Well, like if you if you look at some of the more famous Canadian names on the list, like Elvis Stoiko, the Canadian figure skater, uh, people will remember him, the guy who used to do the karate chop moves on the ice. Oh, and yeah, his, the great, the great haircut, right? That's yeah. come back into style now, yeah. Yeah, he had that awesome mullet and everything. Anyway, people remember him, and, and he's named here. 
and he put money had money offshore. Now he issued a statement this week saying, well, he moved to Mexico after he retired from figure skating, and and there was a six point five million dollar life insurance policy that got transferred to the Caribbean. But he says, look, I I did nothing wrong. I didn't break any laws, and there's no suggestion here that he did break any laws. So what's the problem? Yeah, and I think, frankly, Mike, that some of the uh, focus in the media coverage of the Pandora Papers and the other leaks before, remember, this is the third big leak that we've seen. There was the Panama Papers five years ago, then the Paradise Papers, and now the Pandora Papers. Uh, So this is obviously, you know, a bigger, bigger problem. Uh, Yet the the journalists sometimes focus in on the celebrities in it all. You know, I don't know how much money there is in figure skating. But I can assure you Elvis Stoico is not near the top of the list of the Canadian rich people uh, who are taking advantage of the tax system, legally or illegally, uh, to hide their money. So I, I think the focus on someone like him or Gilles Villeneuve is misplaced. I think what we mm. need to focus in on is how this is a day-to-day business activity for rich people that we've never heard of. And, uh, and you know, the issue is, is partly, again, that they're stretching the envelope in terms of what's legal, but mostly that we create all of these loopholes that are illegal, whether you keep your money in Canada or abroad, to avoid paying taxes like a normal working person has to do. Okay, when you look down the list of the most popular tax havens around the world, like people may not be surprised to see like the Cayman Islands on there or parts of South Central America, but then you look down the list on these, these Pandora Papers, South Dakota on the list. So it's, yeah, South Dakota, and it says these papers say that the U- some U.S. states have become popular tax havens, like the president of Ecuador, for example, stashed millions of dollars in South Dakota because of their tax laws. Do you think people should be surprised by that? Oh, no, we've seen this kind of thing happening, a sort of tax competition between jurisdictions. Uh, Particularly, it's, it's common in places that have small populations. So it's not an accident. It's places like Cayman Island and Bermuda internationally or smaller states like South Dakota, or one in, in America that was always the a tax haven was Delaware. Almost every oh. credit card company you've ever dealt with has its headquarters legally based in Delaware because it's a small place. And those, uh, those people figured out early on, you know what, uh, we can get a little bit of money from you know, the, the, the trickle-down of having these legal operations here. It's not like the credit card companies are, are setting up their actual offices there. It's mostly just... Uh, a kind of a shell office with some lawyers and accountants, but we get a little bit of money from it. So, uh, and we have a small population, so we don't need that much uh, to make it worth our while. So you see these small jurisdictions uh, doing this kind of thing. Now, in the U.S. states case, they can't evade the federal taxes, which are the bigger taxes. They're still part of the United States, but they can cut to zero or offer various uh, types of um, incentives and loopholes on state level or subnational taxes. Uh, you, frankly, we've seen a little bit of that happening in Canada as well. You know, well, that we you, had, um, you just anticipated my next question. Like, yeah. what about what about Canada? Are there tax havens sure. here too? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you'd call it a tax haven, but there's certainly been a race to the bottom in taxes. So we had, you know, for years uh, we had the uh, the government in Alberta saying we have the Alberta advantage. We're right. going to cut our corporate tax rate lower than the sort of going rate in the other provinces. And is it really an advantage or is it just an attempt to suck business away from other places? And the only winner in the end is the businesses that get the lower the lower tax rates. And the problem is then everybody ends up being underfunded in terms of the public services that taxes pay for. And you just have to look at Alberta today to understand, yeah, that actually is a problem. Maybe we should set 
a standard level of taxes that allows everyone to pay for the public services that we need. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about offshore tax havens, the Pandora Papers. My guest is Jim Stanford. Star 9898 is the number to call on your cell. David in Surrey, hi. Yes, good morning. Uh, remember the SNC Lavalin situation. Uh, when they were originally charged in 2013, uh, the CEO, uh, uh, initially he, re- he retired, resigned, but Subsequent to that, uh, he made a $650,000 donation to the Trudeau Foundation. And uh, that's how politicians uh, get, get rich. Uh, you know, if you look at their salary that they collect over a period of time, it never adds up to the, the massive amount of money they end up with. And that's one way that, that politicians also uh, enjoy well, a tax haven here at home. Okay, well, but you know, everyone's allowed to get rich if, if they can. But I guess the question for me, Jim, bottom line is, if people are transferring their money offshore, is that illegal or is it just unethical or is it like too secretive? Like if you listen, if you make money in Canada, you have to do you not have to pay taxes on that money in Canada even before you move it out of the country? Well, it depends how you made the money. This is this is part of why I say this is a bigger problem about the injustices within the tax system. So. For example, our personal income tax system has enormous loopholes right here in Canada. You don't have to go to the Turks and Caicos Islands. Enormous loopholes for different types of capital and financial investment profits. And they're all justified, you know, with some kind of economic theory about why we have to give special rewards to financial investors to help them take the risk. But the end of the day is they end up paying half, uh, they pay tax on half of their dividend income instead of all of the, the income that the rest of us have to pay. Uh, a small portion of their capital gains income and all other kinds of flow through credits and other business friendly tax deductions. So they haven't paid a lot of tax on that income right okay. here in Canada. Then okay. if they accumulate a lot and put it overseas somewhere, then they can keep it away from the, the tax man and uh, do with it as they please. So it's, it's, it's not just an overseas problem. It's how we kind of treat the rich and famous in our tax system. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's check in now with uh, the story of Bronx, the dog who was on a death row in Victoria. This is a story we've covered for you before. A d- Bronx is a five-year-old Rottweiler mixed dog. He got into a lot of trouble. He killed another dog in a fight. He bit two people. Uh, the city of Victoria declared Bronx to be a dangerous dog, said he should be euthanized. It triggered a big court fight. Let's find out what happened now with my guest, Ken Griffiths. Ken is the owner of Bronx. He is a dog behaviorist on Vancouver Island in the Comox Valley. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ken, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, Ken, give us the news here. What happened yesterday in court? Uh, the judge, uh, there was two questions in front of the judge. First one is whether or not Bronx was a dangerous dog. And the second one was whether or not Bronx posed a serious risk to uh, a risk to seriously injure or kill a human in the future. So, in the first instance, the judge did decide or agree that Bronx was a dangerous dog because he uh, he did kill another dog. Uh, intent isn't taken into account in that that type of a ruling. It's just whether or not he did. The second point, the judge decided that Bronx doesn't pose a serious risk to seriously injure or kill uh, a human because we have video of the incidents and and they weren't vicious attacks um and he believed that i had the ability and the skills 
to be able to take Brock's on into my home and do the rehabilitation that's needed. And basically that's just having Bronx learn how to socialize properly, play properly, and to be respectful to both dogs and people. Um, I have them here right in front of me right now, and there's 35 dogs in the house, so 36. Okay, okay so Bronx was, Bronx was released to you, so he's no longer on death row, right? Correct. Yeah, okay, so I know you got, you got Bronx yesterday. How did, how did that feel to get your dog back? Oh, it was just an amazing feeling um, when I went in there to get him. It was like, you're going home, buddy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was really happy. His old owner, Rick Venora, was um, waiting outside to meet him, and Bronx was extremely excited to see him. He hadn't seen him in seven months. And uh, Rick, as well, was just ecstatic to see Bronx again. So we let them have some time together to share their love and uh, did a news story there, and then... Uh, I left to bring Bronx home. I stopped in. Uh, well, Br- Bronx is labeled as a dangerous dog within the city of Victoria. So anywhere outside of the city of Victoria, he's not. So once I got outside of the uh, city limits, I took Bronx for a, a walk in the bush and got to go in the river and spent an hour there. Okay, have there been any, been any problems? Like, Ken, you mentioned that you've got... How many dogs you got at your house, did you say? Total right now, 36. Holy smokes, 36 dogs. And, you, you know, I know you're a dog behaviorist and you take a lot of these dogs into your home. So when you got Bronx home last night, were there any trouble? Was there any trouble with the other dogs? No, not at all. Okay. No, no, no. I didn't introduce Bronx to all the dogs. Uh, when I got home, I just let Bronx in the, in the front yard by himself just to get the scent and relax and, you know, get a sense of where he was. And then one of the dogs that he met during consultation that I did with him was Melina. So I brought Melina out, and, and he remembered her. And then I have another dog that's White Honey. That um, She's kind of like a pack player. She's mm-hmm. a rescue I have her from Korea. She just loves dogs. So Bronx did really good with them. And uh, then he slept on the bedroom last, or in, in the bedroom last night on the bed with me uh, with some other dogs just in crates around. So right now it's just getting them climatized to being here and all these other dogs after being in captivity okay. for seven months, right? It's, it's this okay. Whole hey, Ken, let me ask you this. You said that, you know, Bronx did kill another dog. He, like, how many people did he bite? Didn't he bite two people? Two people. Yeah. So when you say, though, it's not vicious, like, you know, some people listening might be saying, well, wait a minute, if he killed another dog and he, and he bit two other people, how is he not a dangerous dog? How is he not a vicious dog? Can you explain that? Well, he didn't, he didn't bite the people, he nipped them. And there's three different degrees of, of this. There's either mouthing, nipping, or biting. And that depends on the intent of the dog and, and the situation. So this little dog, the, the video clearly shows that the little dog challenged Bronx. And, and this is a very important issue for a lot of people that own little dogs. Just because your dog is little, it's still a dog. And, and your dog has to socialize properly. So this little dog coming up towards where Bronx was, was challenging Bronx. And so Bronx challenged back. So because that little dog was on the leash, it couldn't move. It tried to, it kept trying to go towards Bronx, but the leash was blocking that. And then Bronx, the owner lost or didn't have the, uh, when Bronx lunged, his owner lost his leash. <clears throat> so Bronx just did one nip. And the lady, it's natural for people to do this. She, she pulled up on the leash, which pulled, pulled the little dog away from Bronx, so up in the air. And it landed eight feet away from her, at least. 
that Whoa. needs to be laid from her. So Jeez. it's it's more than likely, quite possible, that it was that that ended up causing that injury resulting in the dog's death, not not necessarily the bite of Bronx. Okay. And then so, the, one of the people, he bit him in the leg, or nipped him in the leg, the, tore the pants. But, it, again, there was it was a very minor injury. He did end up going to the hospital, but he just walked there. There was no, medica- no medications or antibiotics prescribed. And then the other one, it was just a, a little tiny nick on the person's hand. Hmm. You know, and, and these are not serious injuries, nowhere near serious injuries. Okay, so, speaking, I'm speaking to Ken Griffiths. He's the owner of Bronx, the dog who was on death row, and, and Ken went to court to try and get his dog back, and he won in court yesterday. Uh, Bronx has been released back into his custody. He's no longer facing that death, death sentence. Uh, Ken, would you say you're a dog behaviorist? Would you say that, would you acknowledge there are some dogs that are dangerous and, and, and do have to be put down? Would you acknowledge that, or would you say that like any oh, dog can be reformed? What, what are your thoughts? Oh, no, absolutely there's truth yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, and that depends on the level of dominance. Uh, the dog is either a submissive dominant, a beta, or an alpha. So the alphas are, are born to be the leaders, the top dog. They're fearless, and, and they don't mess around. It's, you know, they're, they're going to correct you as a human or another dog when they act inappropriately in their presence or if they try and challenge them. Now, in order to earn the trust and respect of an alpha dog, you yourself have to be an alpha person because there's submissive dominant beta and alpha people as well, right? So only 10% of the dog population are alphas and only 10% of the human population are alpha. Now, of that human population, only half of them are balanced. Uh, half the alpha humans are balanced. The other half are in prison or need to be in prison, so to speak, right? So... <laughs> You have to be a, a, a balanced alpha human to earn the trust and respect of an alpha dog. So that's only 5% of people. So there's, there's not enough of us out there. Uh, so there are, and there are occasions where the dog, it's, they're just so strong in their desire and determination to be that top dog that they are dangerous. And, and, and those dogs do need to be put down. But that is... Okay far less than the number that are actually being euthanized every year. Like, there was 53 dogs euthanized in Nanaimo between 2010 oh. and 2019. And 11 of them were euthanized since 2019 when Ian Fraser, the guy that owns the Nanaimo Animal Control Center, knew about me through a court case I did with him in, in Nanaimo. And they never called me. You know, these people, they never called me for help okay. with dogs. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Ken Griffiths. He's the owner of Bronx, the dog on death row in Victoria. He won his court case yesterday, and uh, Bronx, the dog, has been released back into his care. Can bad dogs be reformed? Phone me on that now. Tell me what you think. If a dog bites someone or kills another dog, do you think they should receive an automatic death sentence, or do you think some of these dogs can be reformed again? Phone me right now. You can open phone line 604 604- 280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Hey, uh, Ken, is Bronx, when you take Bronx outside, does he have to have a muzzle on? Uh, no, he doesn't require a muzzle. If he's out here. If he's in Victoria, he does. Yeah, so he's a dangerous dog in Victoria, so he has to have a muzzle on there. But if he's outside Victoria, do you, do you take the muzzle off or do you keep the muzzle on him? As I first start working with him in, in public, I'll have the muzzle on him. Yeah. And then as, 
as I start to see that, that, that he's okay, that there's no issues and stuff, then, then the muzzle will come off. Okay, let's go to some, first for safety. Let's go to some phone calls. Shauna on the line in Comox. Hi, Shauna. Good morning. Hi, go ahead. Good morning, Ken. Kudos morning. to Ken. Kudos to Ken. This man is not only a behavioralist, he understands dogs' minds. I have been at his establishment. He rehabilitated my dog, and it's a pleasure to hear that good news for him. He works tirelessly. His dogs are absolutely amazing, and I've seen dogs who are nasty, and but calm, calm Ken. He just remains calm, never yells, never hits, just snaps his fingers, and has the patience of Job. He's okay. a credit to the, the island. I just okay. support him entirely. All right, Shauna, thank you for calling on that. And Ken, thank like, you, what Shana. what is your philosophy in dealing with these dogs? Like, you know, you were talking about, you know, the alpha, the alpha humans and the alpha dogs. Is it kind of tough love? You got to be tough with these dogs, or how do you do it? No, no, not at all. It's, it's about being their mother. Really. really, it's not about being the alpha male and boss and stuff like that. It's about being their mother, and there's a deep psychological reason for that. So we don't train our children; we teach them. And the three main lessons we teach our children are to socialize properly, to play properly, and to be respectful. And dogs teach their children the same lesson. But when a puppy leaves its mother at eight weeks old and goes into a human home, these humans don't know how to teach the dog those lessons. If it's a submissive dog, which is 70% of dogs out there, the vast majority of dogs are submissive dogs, then that's not an issue. But when you have a dominant dog, that's when things change. And we hmm. see that with okay. children as well, right? Incorrigible children, children that don't listen and, and stuff like that. And it's, usually it's because they're dominant children. Okay, let's go to Rob on the line in Kelowna. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. You know, I think this is absolutely preposterous. The dog killed another dog. This guy says, what's the difference between a nip and a bite? Uh, I mean, that could scar people. A dog, a big dog, aggressive dog like that, going after a senior could cause a heart attack. Going after a child could scar that child emotionally for life. This guy, you shouldn't even have this guy on the program. He doesn't deserve the airtime. Okay, well, Ken, well, he won his court, he, the judge disagreed with you, well, he, he won his court case. On. What? What'd you say? The judge is a moron. That's why we have, but that's why oh, we okay, have let's go. So okay, okay, Ken, what do you say? Go ahead. Well, well, that's why we have court cases, so that we can present the facts to a judge, and an impartial person can look at the facts and see. Now, i just like to state, if, if, if a stranger that you were uncomfortable with came up to pet you on the top of the head... You're either going to back away from the person to say, hey, what are you doing? Or you're going to punch them. Dogs don't have fists. They only have a mouth. So when a person that a dog is uncomfortable with, especially a dominant dog, tries to approach them and pet them on the top of the head or touch them, the dog is going to back away to say, hey, what are you doing? Or they're going to bite you. So we don't kill people because they get into a, like, an argument or a challenge and start punching each other. And, and that's basically what happened with this case with the little dog. It, it was equivalent to two teenage boys getting into a bit of a dominance challenge, but they don't punch, they just bite a nip. Okay, let's go. It, let's, it's understanding let's, that. Let's squeeze another call in. Karen in Kelowna. Hi, Karen. Go ahead. Hi. Um, well, I think animal control authorities are all too eager to uh, declare dogs dangerous and try to destroy them. Um, I had uh, a dog that was declared, declared dangerous, uh, bit a jogger in the leg, um, sat in confinement, cruel confinement for six months. 
Um, the dog was released uh, with lots of training. We desensitized him completely to joggers, bicyclists, etc. So, of course, dogs can be rehabbed. Okay, Karen, thank you for that. Let's squeeze another couple of calls in here while we have the time. Tom in Surrey. Hi, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, to me, there's a, a very simple solution. Uh, for one thing, a dog is, not, uh, is an animal. It's not a person. But to me, the simplest solution, a dog off the owner's property should have a muzzle on. No problem on the owner's property, no muzzle, nothing. Once off the property, put a muzzle on them. Nobody gets bitten. No other dogs get killed. Yeah, thank you for that, Tom. Yeah, that's when I when I saw the uh, the videotape of you yesterday uh, getting Bronx from the dog shelter can. I noted that Bronx had that muzzle on, and as you explained, he's still deemed a dangerous dog in Victoria. I mean, why take the chance? Like, why not keep the muzzle on him just just in case something happens when you're out? Outside. Yes, it's, if, if you have any indication at all that your dog is going to be aggressive or could be aggressive, your dog absolutely should be wearing a muzzle. There's no yeah. question about that. The, the problem in this, uh, now, this incident that first happened with the little dog back in 2018, Bronx was almost three years old. And in that three years, Bronx was um, on the street with, with his owner every day. And there was never, ever any issues for those first three years. Mm-hmm. Right? So... There are cases where people say, oh, my God, my dog has never done that. And there is some truth to that sometimes, that the dog has never done that. And it's just some situation that day. So it's hard to tell. But again, it's just like children that sometimes get into fights and stuff, right? You don't know until it first happens. But then you deal with it to try and make sure it doesn't happen again. And this is where the animal control in Victoria really failed Bronx's last owner in not helping him to try and get training and and to work through these issues and everything and the judge even mentioned that in court okay he's not impressed okay we'll have we'll have to that. we'll have to leave it there ken thanks for coming on to talk about the case and we'll see how it goes from here thanks a lot thank you mike all right welcome back to the show it is a big day at vancouver city council just keeping an eye on the proceedings there as they get set to vote on that climate change emergency parking plan for the city of vancouver 45 dollars a year to park on a residential side street now that is to start okay you can you know you can bet it will go up from there a thousand dollars a year if you buy a new gas-powered truck or SUV. Just taking a look at proceedings at Vancouver City Council, which are underway right now. Still lots of people who want to speak on this at Council today. So the vote coming up later. But let's discuss now. We've got a great panel for you, both sides of it. Mira Orek on the line. She is a former director of stakeholder relations for Premier John Horgan. And I'm pleased to welcome her back. Mira, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Also on the line is Gavin Dew. Gavin is a former director of the Vancouver NPA uh, Municipal Party. He is running for the BC Liberal Party leadership. Gavin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, and good to see you, Mira. Nice to hear your voice. Okay, thank you to both of you. Mira, let me go to you first. You support this plan, right? I support support the plan. Why do you you support it? it? 
Well, I think um, the main reason I support it is because I don't think that private car owners should be entitled to public land at no cost. And I think that that's actually the crux of the issue. In my view, the problem with this um, with this policy presentation is the banner in which it's being sold under, which is as a climate emergency parking plan. This is an important revenue generator for the city, and that's positive. And, you know, the city has limited sources of revenue. Um, and if these funds go towards climate initiatives, all the better. We need, we, you know, we, we already charge for parking as a city. We all know that. Um, I just think we're having the wrong conversation here. This conversation should be structured around the value of public land um, and private use, and, and we're not having that conversation. We're having one about about climate, about affordability, and, and a range of other issues. Yeah, but the city has said the reason they call, call it a climate emergency plan is because they're trying to convince people to drive less, right? So if you whack them in the wallet, maybe they'll sell their car and take the bus instead. I mean, isn't that one of the one of the goals of this? I mean, I think that, first of all, great if that's what the city is trying to do, and I support that. Um, not everyone's in a position to do that, of course, and we know that. I think that, again, this isn't a people want to have a conversation that's anti-car, pro-car, you know, pro-bike. If that's the level of conversation we're having, we're not going to get the solutions we, we need to get and, and that we should be seeking. Okay, let me go to, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, let me go to Gavin Dew and get his thoughts on it. Gavin, go ahead. You know, Mira has actually pointed out the muddled message, and I think that's true. There's three realities we need to talk about. Number one, we need to act on the climate crisis, but the words climate change are not abracadabra. They don't magically make any given policy effective, affordable, or fair. Secondly, the cost of living in Vancouver is a crisis, especially for working families, and municipal taxes are already rising at three to four times the rate of inflation. Thirdly, there is a crisis of trust between the city and its residents. And everyday working people are tired of being looked down on and talked down to while paying more and getting less. So my message to the city would be this. Mow the grass, fix the potholes, clear the building permit backlog, get your spending under control, and then let's talk about what's next. Oh, Gavin, that's such a scarcity perspective, though. I mean, truly, people are suffering in this city. They're looking for solutions, and they're looking for their governments to create those solutions. You know, we're not, there's homeless people living on the street, and we're going to say it's another, so sorry, we're mowing the grass. No, we have a responsibility to address the, the problems that residents are facing, and the climate crisis is one of them. Is this the be-all and end-all solution? No, I don't believe it is. Is it fine if it happens? Yes, I do believe it is. I also well, think I just say that this is quite likely to happen. It may not happen in this moment. I, I suspect it won't. Um, but I hope it comes back under the stated goal of raising revenue and um, in, in a way that the public can trust and understand. When, Amira, when you say you, you don't think it'll happen in this moment, what, you think this is going to be voted down at council? Is that what you're saying, or...? I do. I'd be surprised oh. if it goes if it passes through. We'll see. Maybe it oh, will. Okay. You know, maybe it won't. Okay. I think I maybe you have a different read on it than me. I, I it seems to have. I don't know. There's a lot of support on council, but Gavin, do go ahead. Your thoughts. Uh, look, I, again, I find myself agreeing with Mira in part. We need to take climate action, but the government has to be credible and transparent about the costs and impacts in order to get buy-in for people, and that isn't happening here. This could not have been worse timed or worse executed, and the public backlash has been 
huge. Even Kennedy Stewart seems to have figured out that it's being interpreted as an attack on working people. He's been softening his language in recent days. Yeah. This is going to come down to his vote. I don't think this is, I mean, this is interesting that suddenly you see people on the right, you know, with this, this serious equity lens, you know, when we never hear that out in support of affordable housing projects and other ways to make the city more equitable. Um, you know, I, I think that... Um, that there's issues around implementation, and I think councillors have raised those, and that makes sense. Again, we're having, we're trying to have, you know, six different conversations around one motion, and in my view, that's why this is this is running into problems. Hey, Mira, let me ask you this: I think one of the I think strongest arguments against this approach is that the city is saying that this is a climate change program. They want to lower emissions in the city of Vancouver, and if they can force people out of their cars and get them to take transit or ride a bike instead. That's the way forward. I mean, this is the stated goal of this. But, I mean, if you take a look at the transit infrastructure in the city of Vancouver, like nobody, a lot of people don't have a reasonable or viable transit option. So if you're going to hammer them because they drive a car, is that fair if they don't have a reasonable transit option in the, in the city? It's, I think, Mike, I think it's a both and. Yes, of course, we need greater transit in the city. There's no question. Greater access to it, greater availability. Um, you know, well, there's, a, there's a range of things that our city needs around infrastructure and our region needs. And this isn't the be-all, end-all solution to it. And I don't think charging people $45 a year um, or $5 if you're low income to pay for their car to park on the street is going to either significantly, you know, uh, meet the outcome or inhibit it. It's, uh, it's again, it's, we, many price. people across the city pay for parking already. We know that. So there is a question of, you know, why do people pay for parking in certain neighborhoods and not others? Okay, Gavin Dew, go ahead. The city's own climate lead has said the intent is to start the tax lower than increase it to market rates. West End permits went from 78 bucks to 360 not long ago. So now imagine you're a multi-generational working class home with a laneway house tenant, a lock-off suite tenant, a few family cars, including a couple of work trucks. All of a sudden, in a couple of years, you could be paying as much curb tax to park in front of your own home as you are in property tax. So the consequences are very real. I think and talking about what the introductory price is today is totally disingenuous. I think it's a bit hyperbolic, Gavin, but I, I, I suspect Those you know that. Most people in this city don't live with five or six cars, you know, attached to their home. But Maybe it is a cost, and it's a, it's a legitimate... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Guys, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insist you don't talk over each other. Mira, go ahead, finish your thought there. Thank you. No, I just, you know, I think that the goal should be, as, as the city has stated, to get people moving in different forms of transit that, uh, or di- you know, that reduce our emissions. And and that's an important stated goal. And the city should be working, you know, in every way they can towards that. And if this is one tool in hopefully a much larger and more thorough toolbox, then, you know, I have I, I personally have no issue with it. Okay, Gavin, real the quick. The mongering, I think, is just is where, you know, this needs to end. Gavin, go ahead, real quickly. Yeah, I think, look, even the tie which is hardly a right-wing mouthpiece, is talking about who's left behind by this policy, and it is those working-class, multi-generational households. They're talking in a recent article about latte urbanism, well-intentioned policies made over coffee that don't reflect the reality of how people and families actually live their lives in city in cities. And I think that is definitely the case here. This needs to go back to the drawing board. It needs to be fundamentally rethought. And I'm pretty confident that's the outcome we're going to get from council today. 
All right, welcome back. We're talking about Vancouver's proposed climate change emergency parking plan with my guest, Mira Oreck. She supports it. Gavin Dew, he's opposed to it. Tons of phone calls here. Let's get right to them. Sam and Burnaby. Hi, Sam. Hey, how are you doing? Um, just listening uh, just briefly um, on your uh, two guests, Gavin, valid points. He is based in reality. Moira, not only do you talk over Gavin, you have a contempt for people that basically don't hold your position and you try to belittle them. Even though past experiences with the, the city of Vancouver parking tax has always been to increase. That's all it is. And it's not public land. They're paid through property taxes through homeowners. And the city has allowed um, lane houses, which require parking. Now they have you. So there, it's not $45 per month per household. It'll be, it'll be minimum two or $300 to start with. Okay, Mira. Mira. Thanks so much for the comment. Um, you know, what I would say is that I think the bigger issue here is that we need leadership in City Hall that can bring people together. And I, I don't ultimately think that that's what we're getting in this moment. Um, you know, you, you'll remember from years past, I've been involved in Vision Vancouver and continue to be. There was a backlash a decade, a decade ago over bike lanes. And guess what? They're super popular now. So, you know, the, the, the city is changing. It needs to change. It should change. It's evolving to address the needs of our city and of our, and of our global realities. And this is one tool, and it may not be the right tool, but it does achieve, you know, it will get, uh, gain some revenue that could be put to good use. And frankly, we need to find solutions. Um, we need to make sure that actions achieve the stated goals, but we're gonna, okay. we need to say yes to something. Okay, Gavin, real quick. Yeah, I mean, I, I do find it interesting. Uh, you know, Mira obviously used to work for John Horgan, and it sounds like she's not too impressed by Kennedy Stewart. So I think it's interesting to see the kind of division between the different elements of the municipal and provincial left uh, on this issue. It, it certainly is, is quite uh, intriguing to see that develop, and I'll be interested to see uh, whether Kennedy Stewart uh, still maintains the support uh, well, of the NDP. Uh, we'll, we'll see. That. I think Ken- Kennedy Stewart might be the swing vote on this one when it comes up to a vote on council. Let's go to Ryan on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, uh, I just wanted to say, well, two things. One, this is, this is public land people are parking in, and I think it should be for the benefit of all public, not just people who live in detached homes. I live in a condo. If this keeps my taxes lower, great. I had to pay for my own parking. So should they. Um, and second of all, uh, this is specifically to Gavin. I'm a BC Liberal member. I'm not looking for a leader who's going to do reactionary meddling in city politics. This lowers your, your place on my ballot. Okay, go ahead, Gavin. How do you respond? Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, you know, I tweeted about this yesterday, and Mike asked me to come on. I do think this is a matter of principle. I think it's really important that we're communicating with people about what we're trying to achieve, and that we're not just, you know, spinning policies and trying to pretend there's something that they're not. What, what, about, what about his point, and Mira has made the same point, that these residential side streets are public land, and this is private use of public land when you're parking on the street, and therefore you should pay for it. What do you say to that? gets a little bit twisted up when we start having that conversation. The reality is that taxpayers uh, are are paying for everything in the city at some point, one way or another. Uh, There's a conversation worth having around pricing parking. I think that is a valid conversation, but I think we ought to do that in a more concerted, thoughtful uh, way that doesn't just impose basically a doubling of property tax on people over a couple of years. Okay, let's go to Brian on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. 
Okay, so I got three things to say here. One, I don't pay a thousand dollars a month to drive because I like driving. I hate driving. If I could get rid of my car, I would, but I have to drive. Two, the uh, climate action plan for Vancouver is all wrong. It's about reducing emissions. Vancouver can't change the whole entire world. It should be about finding, making cooling centers, shoring up the shoreline for sea ocean rise, and and putting in more trees to to cut out the sunlight and actual things that are going to protect the people from the climate change because the climate change has happened whether vancouver gets rid of every single car or not they need to find a way to fix the city so people don't die from heat and the city doesn't get flooded when the ocean rises okay let me go to mira on that one mira what do you think of that um you're right we i mean we we need both we need climate action we do need to reduce our emissions we certainly can't sit here and say this is someone else's problem and unfortunately we're in a place where we also need to um mitigate for the situation that we're in we do need cooling centers we do need to consider what happens in heat domes and um and the city didn't hasn't shown enough leadership on that you know on the previous caller um, who, who pays for parking already. I, I think this is a point that's maybe getting a bit missed in this discussion. There's, of course, you know, renters um, throughout the city in high-density neighborhoods with permit parking who are sort of shrugging at this policy going, you know, we, I already do this. So, you know, maybe in Dunbar or Carisdale or, you know, even where I live in Grandview Woodland, people, this is a big change. But for a lot of people in the city, this this is already happening. So I think it's worth having the conversation within the context of what actually exists in our city right now. Okay, let's squeeze another call in. John in Vancouver. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, i got three points to make. First, Make, make one, will you? Just that, make one. Make uh, one point. Okay, well, the, the deal is uh, 2023 and newer vehicles by federal law are mandated to be less polluting and more fuel efficient than any previous model. Who is Vancouver City Council to say that they're not? Okay. Okay. Th- I, I think that's a good. I think that's a good point, Gavin. Do you think there's a contradiction there? They're only going after new, new gas-powered vehicles. I think he gets to a broader point. We have in British Columbia the highest uptake of electric vehicles in North America. We have extensive provincial, federal, and private sector action happening to drive that. I mean, I know that there are councillors that want to be MLAs and MPs and UN diplomats, but the city needs to do its job on the basics first before it starts mowing other people's lawns. Okay. Uh, you know, I just say I don't think we need to diminish those who are there by, you know, suggesting that they shouldn't be looking to take bolder action. I agree that there's incentives at other levels, but really in 2023, if you're going to choose to buy a polluting gas guzzling car, maybe, you know, that that's brand new. Maybe you should have to pay an extra cost for it. 